Welcome to Straight Talk Live. My name is Rick Snyder. I'm one of your hosts for the show. I'm the CEO of Invisible Edge, the author of Decisive Intuition. And we have an incredibly packed show for you today on one of the most important topics we can be discussing in our world right now around diversity and the idea that diversity has actually failed. And so we're going to go much deeper into what does that really mean? What's next? What needs to change? Uh, based on the conversations we're having and the ones that we're needing to have in the boardroom, in the office space, and in our living rooms, in our communities, et cetera. So Straight Talk Live, it's, this is our nonprofit uh, project that we launched uh, several months ago, me and Af in London. And uh, basically the three pillars of the show are human transformation, digital transformation, and social impact. And this topic touches all three uh, right in the in the plumb line through all of them. And so we're going to really get to di di dive deeply into all of these and really get to the bottom of how can diversity actually amplify and increase our intelligence, our conversations, our, our empathy, uh, and, and really getting to the bottom of some of our deepest problems today. Before I go any further, I want to introduce our co-host, Af Malhotra. Af, take it away. Thank you, Rick. It's funny you're not calling me Af anymore because... Someone said, why does Rick call you Af and not Af? I said, well, he's pronouncing it correctly because it's, it's pronounced Aftab in the spirit of diversity. Yes, that's true. And, that's and true. So you're bang on, mate. And so you can call me Af or Af. And, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm so open to this, right? <laughs> so, um, what, what a show. Uh, delighted again to, to be on this show with two fantastic guests. I'm Af Malhotra or Af Malhotra, whatever you want to call me. I'm the uh, co-founder of Growth Enabler and, of course, uh, one of the, uh, the uh, devious partners in crime that Mr. Mr. Schneider has to, um, to then come up with this fantastic venture of ours. So, uh, as I always say, let's crack on and start getting into the details of this very, very compelling. And I promise you one thing, uh, passion will be on level 10 today, right, um, mm -hmm. guests? So uh, let, let's move forward. So over to you, Rick, and then let's move uh, ahead with the conversation. Okay, and I, I concur here. So it's going to be full of passion and realness. And that's really what we're bringing today in the, the form of our two special guests. So we have two very incredible guests for you today that really walk the talk. They know about diversity inside and out. They've had to be in very uncomfortable, awkward positions, speak uh, truth to power, uh, there's a lot to learn, a lot that I have to learn today, a lot that we have to learn in this conversation. So without further ado, I'm going to have each of you introduce yourselves. Um, how about Seema Bennett? Let's start with you, if you can introduce a little bit about you and your background. Uh, thank you, Rick and Af, off for having me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Seema Bennett. I'm Global Sales Director for uh, an amazing organization called Every Woman. And uh, I've been with them for about six and a half years. And uh, we uh, basically try and uh, help corporates and, and organizations get a better gender parity and advance women at every level. Uh, before that, I, uh, I, I was on the board of a tech company. Um, I was the only woman on, 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 a, uh, on that. And so that's something to discuss, you know, women in tech. Uh, and before that, I had my own organization. And before that, I lived abroad with my husband he dragged me away from being a molecular biologist and uh, we lived uh, in, in Finland and China for many years. So mm. that's me. Thank you. And the birthday woman, Miss Casey. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is her birthday today, by the way. So happy birthday, Casey. <laughs> Thank you. Thank happy you. Birthday. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So very quickly, um, I'm the founder of two organizations. Uh, one is B2B Match, uh, a membership-based uh, business matchmaking platform that we launched uh, earlier this year for small and medium businesses to connect so that they can outsource, scale, network, and find clients. I'm also the founder of Red Dot Digital, which is a five-year-old uh, digital strategy and management consulting firm. Um, in that, um, very close to, to CIMA, I have an international background, grew up in, international, you know, in multiple countries, worked in multiple countries. Um, you know, and, and I forgot to say that I'm also with OFF. <laughs> the, um, I'm part of an organization called Tech Advocates. And I'm the founder for Tech uh, Canada Advocates, which is uh, part of the Global Advocate Network, which is really great. Um, so my business brings me in many different countries from the US to Canada, to France, to Turkey, to Kuwait. And um, I always see things in multiple layers. And it's interesting for me to talk about diversity because um, I, I think I have a bit of a unique experience in in that so i'm very happy to be able to share that with you today thank you and let's crack on as af off says right so here's what i want to start is diversity you know obviously the whole world um really has become a flame with this conversation especially since the killing of um, george floyd brianna taylor countless others around police brutality and it really just took the world by storm, actually, around really re-examining examining this old issue that's never really healed, that's never really moved in, in some really significant ways, especially structurally um, and systemically. And so it's really, you know, spurred on all these amazing conversations that I've been part of, that I know a lot of you have been part of in different ways. So let me ask you, why, why do you say diversity has failed? What's failed about it? And um, let's start there. Who'd like to pick that up? I mean, I'm happy to talk. Seema, please go ahead, please. I was well, I, I was gonna say, you know, it's interesting. When you look at what's happening uh, around the world, uh, particularly around Black Lives Matter and all the challenges that are happening uh, around the world uh, on that subject, you know, you would think diversity has failed. You know, that you would think that there's institutionalized racism, uh, there's not enough people of color in senior positions, there's not enough women in senior positions. And so in that sense, you're right, diversity has failed. When I look back at the six and a half years that I've spent at Every Woman, and we talk D&I, diversity and inclusion every day, every hour of the day to multiple organizations. What I can see is that there is a real sense of positive movement in some organizations. You know, some organizations have made leaps and bounds when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Others are still not seeing the benefits despite all the myriad of research that has been done by McKinsey and many others. And so I suppose that is the juxtaposition. Society as a whole still is failing with diversity. 
but some organizations are doing very well but is that enough you know Casey what what is your view there I think I agree with you if I'm going to look at it from a corporate perspective and I definitely agree with you if I look at it from a societal perspective I mean culturally we're more diverse than ever uh, but in a sense uh, what I feel we, what, why we say and why I often say that diversity uh, failed is because organizations um, focused on the low-hanging fruit, which was the gender diversity. And so they made a lot of efforts uh, towards gender diversity. And I remember vividly in the past five years that I've heard about diversity and I've been in meetings around diversity and sometimes um, I was the only person of color in a sea of women um, and I would always address the fact that you know advancing the gender diversity agenda is great but what are we doing with the subgroups which we call intersectionality so I would like to talk more about inclusion mm -hmm. which to me fits better what we're trying to thrive towards versus talking about diversity and then just putting a checklist next to it and trying to, uh, to fit it. Could you help us get more clear on that point right there? How do you distinguish diversity and inclusion? And if you can give a concrete example, that'd be really helpful. Sure. So for me, diversity is, has become, so there's a difference between what a scholar would tell you and what I would tell you. My experience is really very empirical. Um, I think uh, for, for me, what I've seen around diversity is programs that corporate companies, governments are trying to follow in order to have more women, uh, more sometimes indigenous, if you take, North, you know, Canada or uh, to have more specific groups, you know, um, and whereas inclusion is really to create a culture, to create a, an environment where everyone feels welcome regardless of you know those different buckets um like i feel like diversity is more cat like a category whereas inclusion was layers and nuances you know for example you could look at me and say well she's a black woman but i'm a black woman and i'm i, I speak multiple like um languages so where do you you know, I'm not African-American, so what am I? You know, it's like, where would I fit in this category? And I think inclusion provide that space uh, for organizations to let people be who they are um, better. Yeah, I mean, I always laugh because, you know, that old adage of diversity is being invited to the party and inclusion is being asked to dance. You know, so it's as Casey says, you know, other layers, um, you know, it's that making sure that you not only ask someone of a different background for their opinion, but you then listen to that opinion and you make sure that you include it in your final, you know, um, conclusions. So, so yeah, I agree, Casey. Yeah, I would even go further. Diversity is a numbers game. Inclusion is a heart game. Um, you know, it's, um, inclusion is really understanding, um, you know, walking the, walking the talk, you know, basically. There's, there's a piece that I wanted to touch on with you guys talking about, um, 
talking about the difference between inclusion and diversity. I, I look at it in a similar way, I, but let me explain the way um, I, I see this. I see inclusion as an enabler of diversity. I think, so an example in the corporate would be, um, I'm part of the decision-making process, or at least I'm asked that, uh, I'm asked my view, my opinion. So I've been included in the decision. Um, diversity for me is all about being the decision maker, not just being the contributor to the, uh, the decision. So where I see a big gap in diversity today, and love your perspective on this, is the boardroom. I, and I think when we talk about diversity failing, uh, look, there are loads of, there, there's a mixed group of people at different levels in an organization. Take Google, for example, a, a, a very interesting piece of empirical evidence. Google spent $268 million between 2016 and 2018 on um, diversity and inclusion. And they did that primarily because the number of um, colored people, ethnic people, non-white people, black people, whatever terminology we want to use, was uh, single digit. It was insignificant. It, wasn't, it didn't bode well for an organization like Google. And so guess what? Two years later, that specifically around black leaders, that number was 2% before they started. When they finished, it was about 2%. And the point I'm making here is if an organization like Google can put hundreds of millions of dollars and create fanfare, smoke and mirrors in a nice way, I'm not saying they're going out of their way to dupe the population of the world, but a lot of money is injected into diversity and inclusion programs. But actually at the end of the day, the boardroom is still white male. And yeah, so yeah. Here, here is why one of the um, contributors of the statement and the support uh, pillars around why diversity has failed is because diversity has failed because actually boardrooms aren't diverse. Let's be honest. Mm -hmm. um, we keep banging our heads against the wall having this conversation. It's almost trite, maybe bordering on boring because you know people are like, oh my God, diversity again. No, the friggin' problem is that organizations have no role models that are brown, black, ethnic at boardroom level to excite people at different levels in the organization to believe that, okay, someone from an ethnic background can be successful. Mm -hmm. And even if you are biased, and I'm fed up of unconscious bias training, it's a waste of money. Uh, the best way to demonstrate change is to say, Casey is the chief financial officer. Oh my God, say all the people, how, how could you put someone like Casey in the role? But six months later, a year later, Casey transforms that particular um, uh, unit and people start to realize, oh my God, right, she's actually very good at what she does. A great example of that is Satya Nadella in Microsoft. He came in, stock price was what, I don't know, 30, 40 bucks when Steve Ballmer was around. For God knows how long, it was like a static stock price. The guy came in, he's from an Indian background, and, and please don't think for a moment, as you guys know, Bill Gates only had him in mind, or the board. There were loads of other candidates who were not from his background, who wanted that job. He got the job and he's shown that he's transformed the organization. And I think inclusion and diversity, they go hand in glove. They're both important topics, but inclusion is great if diversity works. Otherwise, it's just a really nice emotionally enabled to your point, comfort factor. So my question to both of you and personal stories, I know you've got a lot of them, um, whoever wants to start. Talk to me about why you categorically believe that diversity is on its last legs or it's smoke and mirrors or it's bullshit or it's failed. Um, and you might have a contrarian opinion. You might say, Afric, uh, not quite. I think it's, it's fantastic. It's doing really well. Um, the personal story is very important at this point. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you both to share a life story 
that brings this topic to life because it's terribly important and we need to discuss it frankly. So whoever wants to go first. Oh, take on laugh. <laughs> but um, I mean, so, so let me give you an example. When I um, came back from China, uh, so I had all these years of experience in, in my field, uh, but I'd been away for, you know, six, seven years. And when I came back, I did what many women do. I thought to myself, oh, I can't go back to science. I, I can't be a scientist again because, you know, I've had all this time off and I won't be good enough. So I didn't even attempt to go back into a field that I know I loved and would be great at. And that, that is to do with confidence. And I think when you're talking about women, especially in those very senior roles, confidence plays a huge <clears throat> issue. And, and you need people around you to tell you, actually, you are just as good as you deep down you know you are. It's your confidence. So I set up a, a, a company, uh, it was, uh, so I, I decided to be an entrepreneur. And little did I know at that time that only one in three UK entrepreneurs are women. And that when you're looking for funding, less than 1% of all funding goes to women. And so I tried to, uh, I had a partner, we set up this business, actually, you know, we put some funding into it. But then I went to the bank and said, I need, I need some more money, you know, to inject into this. We weren't, you know, a small organization. We didn't need angel funding or uh, VC funding. And the bank made me, because I was the one uh, getting the loan, go through multiple hoops. I mean, huge numbers of hoops. It took ages to get the money. We did eventually get the money. And at the time, I didn't think anything of it. But actually, when I look back now, I think it was because I was a woman and I was a woman of color that it took so long for me to get that money, that there was no trust that I would be able to give them back their money with interest uh, because no, there are not enough female entrepreneurs out there. Mm. You know, so when you're, when you're talking about the boardroom off, you know, I would say you're right. You know, the Hampton Alexander report came out a few years ago and it wanted to shift the dial on the number of women in the boardroom. And when, when, you, when you look at what they did, yes, they did, it did shift. You know, companies suddenly decided because the government put their weight behind it, we're gonna have more women in, on, in the boardroom. But actually when you look closely at what they did, they didn't really promote their women from inside and make them executive directors. What they did was they hired a whole load of non-exec directors that happened to be women. Mm -hmm. or, and occasionally they would hire people of color, you know, non-execs. And so, again, we're talking about the boardroom. It's extremely difficult if you don't have the right culture in your organization mm. to get that boardroom balance right. You know, I mean, even, even now we've only got, in the UK, FTSE 100, we have 6% of women CEOs only. And uh, most board boards are made up of 20 to 25% of women, mm. you know, so it's very low. And until we change that whole culture about who deserves to be at the boardroom table, nothing is going to change. Seema, there's a view, I just want to interject, there's a view, because you touched on this point out there, that change will happen 
if you first confront the realities of your culture, A, and you then confront the history of your organization to be able to then categorically and systematically unpick where the company has been, where it is now, and where it intends to go. And the example I kind of give here is one of an insurance company that's been, insurance is one of those industries that's been around for God knows how many centuries, but there are loads of insurance companies that have been around for 100 years, 150, 200 years or more even, including banks. And they were typically, many of them were created, at least in the Western world, by men and uh, because of the nature of the industry. And over the years, they've tried to become more democratic, more diverse, more inclusive, and so on. And there are a few women floating around here and there, and a few you know, ethnic people hanging around, but ten generally you don't see them in board, board positions. But I think if you're a CEO of a company, you have a responsibility with the, all of the awareness that you have today around where the world's changing and the BLM campaign, and even prior to that, you know, there's plenty of historic evidence from you know, Martin Luther King to Mahatma Gandhi to Malcolm X to God knows how many other folks who fought for freedom of some sort or equality. Um, that there is an opportunity now to really change the way we do what we do. So you touch on a very salient point, which is culture. And I'll add one more point to that, which is confront your culture and confront your history. So you, you, you God forbid, you're still where you were 100 years ago. And that's likely because the boardroom is still made up of the same kind of demographic. And it's a little bit embarrassing to say, oh my God, for 150 years, we've had the same demographic. Something's not fitting here. And, and, and so just wanted to raise that point and then pass the baton over to um, Casey to provide her thought process around this. I think what you just said is key. Um, but I have two approaches to that. If you want to change the, you know, the, the boardroom, and I, I'm going to go a bit lower than the boardroom just in a couple of minutes, but just, I'm part of a bunch of boardrooms, and um, I hope to think that I'm chosen because I'm competent. Uh, but I don't mind being chosen as well because I'm the one pop of color. I'm saying that because it's not mutually exclusive. I can, do, I can be both, right? And I think we shy away from the numbers saying, well, if we choose a black person and they're not going to succeed, name me how many companies are actually headed by very incompetent, mediocre white men and they don't spend time, you know, on it. So I want to say, let's get on with it. Let's try to put more diversity, but at the same time, as you said, let's try to change the culture so that it's actually in the DNA of mm. the organization to give access to more people and also to get them to move up the ranks. Mm. So mm. now I want to talk about the tech side, which is where I, 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 I am. And um, there was a headline back in June, um, that said that in Silicon Valley, um, it, it's so racist that black CEOs are told to um, hire a white guy to just sit in meetings to give them that credibility. And this is something that I personally have done um, many times. I've uh, requested friends, colleagues, contacts to just accompany me to meetings. At the time, sometimes they wouldn't even know why. Um, because I knew that if I was to, it would accelerate the decision of the person I was making, I, I was meeting. Mm. Like Ima said, when we come in, 
with credentials, you know, with, you know, we all have credentials, we've done stuff, right? We are still challenged. We're still requested to um, show our competence, right? Um, and I don't see this happen to my white peers, mm. for, you know, uh, to, to my white men peers either. And I think there's this bias, you know, you know, that needs to, that people need to be aware of, I think, if we want to also, uh, you know, we talk about unconscious bias, great, but let's talk about just conscious bias, you know, first of all, um, right. people are conscious, like they consciously look at you and assume that because you're black or brown or a woman, you're definitely not competent or you're, um, so they, they challenge you. It's almost like they set up, they set you up for failure. So to go back to corporate, why did I uh, move uh, from corporate? I was at Deloitte and I was at other big companies. Uh, why did I move from corporate to having my own companies? Part of it is because I would be told that I'm the best at what I do, but the promotion would always go to someone else. Hmm. So, um, for me, it's a, it was a point of, if I'm not going, you know, to crack that concrete ceiling, then I'm going to try and uh, impact the business world differently. Do you feel that you had to work doubly harder or whatever the ratio might be, three times, four times, five times? I think it's more than that. It's, it's not only do we have to work harder and twice is a lie. I think we're at... <laughs> time by 10 maybe um we also have to be better at more things yeah. so my peers are usually just driving their company but i'm driving two companies and i'm on boards and i'm also a guest lecturer at multiple universities and i do this and i do that so i pile things up um and then the other thing is uh that we cannot fail because what i've also noticed is my white counter peer, like my white peers, they would be allowed to fail and they would still get opportunities. However, when we fail, we, that's it. We're, you know, we're not employable anymore. So the pressure to always be the best is there. Um, let me ask you both this question. Um, one of the things that I'm noticing about this topic, uh, when I look at our Facebook feed, for example, um, this topic triggers people more than most topics that we touch on Straight Talk Live. Yeah. Um, it really goes to the heart of, you know, whether we call that, you know, white male fragility and white privilege and the power structures that are in place and how they, you know, the insecurities that are there. And well, I'm not racist and that, I have a, you know, all these, all these kind of things that get triggered. Here, here's my question to you. How do you speak to the mindset of the people who say, well, it should be the most qualified candidate. That's the one who should get. Oh the job, my God, right? Rick! I knew you were going to say that. I knew and, you were. And, say and that. actually, I see that in our Facebook thread. I see about three or four Perfect. of those. So, I love this. So the people okay. who are saying, "Hey, this race, quit playing the race card. It's a bunch of BS. Get over mm -hmm. it. Um, it should be the most qualified candidate." So how would how do you even speak to that mentality? Okay, so I'm going to take that on because I hear that all the time. And to the persons who are saying that, by the way. I'm just going to challenge them a little bit and say, this is what I was um, mentioning earlier to my response to off was, 
I'm on all these boards and I'm asked to do all these kind of things. Does that mean I'm a token or does that mean I'm actually qualified? Mm. Right. And I will challenge anyone to come and tell me that I'm a token. Mm. Um, I think, yes, I put myself forward and yes, I'm, I'm, you know, I do things so that I'm actually asked and sometimes I create those opportunities for me, mm-hmm. but let's take it to a global conversation. Just not about me. Um, I'm, I've joined recently a group called black and brilliant whose premise for existing, um, is exactly that the premise that, well, we'd like to hire black people, but there's no, we don't find them. Right. So, um, this, um, this gentleman in, at NBC started a, um, LinkedIn post where he actually premised that and tagged 10 people, I believe, don't quote me on that, but about 10 people, 10 black and talented people. And from there, the post went viral and I got tagged on it. And now it's created a big movement where I'm part of, and I'm co-chairing a, a, a group uh, on startup and entrepreneurship. And you can actually see all those black people coming together. Last time I was on a webinar and you had the VP of Airbnb who happened to be black. And then you have the senior vice president of this uh, insurance company who happened to be black. And then you have all those black leaders in different industries that happen to be black. My point here is if we tolerate, so I have two points. If we tolerate mediocre, incompetent white men to be at the head of companies, how don't we give the same chance to people who are not them to also fail and be okay with that. And second of all, I think this access thing is not so much a matter of, well, it's the best person who will have the job. I was in position where I was literally the best person who had the job because I was asked to train the person who got the job. Right. And I still didn't get the job. So mm, not really. Yeah. I, I, I mean that, that makes my blood boil. But anyway, you, you know, going back to what Af was saying, you do have to change the culture. The culture in the organization is the most important. And I've got to say it comes from the top. So it's when your CEO makes a stand and actually then delivers on that stand, that is when things start changing. <clears throat> there are numerous stories about organizations where people would say, uh, you know, there were two candidates here, black and white. Oh, the white guy will always get the job. There's no point even the black guy doing the, uh, the, the exam or whatever to get that job. And, and when you look at those sorts of stories, what's happening is the culture within the organization was such that managers, middle managers perhaps, or some senior managers were not doing the process that their HR people had said to do. So they were bypassing the process. No one was checking it. And so suddenly they've got a whole raft of white managers and hardly anyone of color. And so in that example, I remember, I can't remember the company now, but the CEO took a stand. He said, actually, what we're gonna do is we're gonna make this very visible now. Every single promotion, every single performance review, we're gonna share it with the whole organization and we're gonna see which managers are promoting whom and for what and why. 
And what they found was very soon, very, very quickly, when those managers realized that it was going to be on display to everyone and they had the CEO looking down at them, that they started to change the way they did things, that they started to include more people of color, more women into their teams because they knew that they would be challenged on, on the figures. Hmm. You know, I mean, the CEO has such an important role organization, especially when it comes to culture, diversity, and inclusion. You know, that's where I would say you have to change the mindset of, of the CEOs and they have to see the benefits. You know, all the research out there now shows, you know, that it's unequivocal, you know, the more diverse your board, the more diverse your, your uh, employees in your organization, the more innovative you are, the, the more uh, uh, diverse ideas come out, you know, all in all, it's, it's a much better solution and it gives you better business outcomes. And so if you're a CEO of a, a company trying to deliver uh, share price value to, to your shareholders, why wouldn't you then want to be a more diverse and inclusive organization? Exactly. I have a, a different angle on this uh, around VC investment and funding. It's very similar to boards, but different also. Uh, and it's like what you're saying, Sima, there's a lot of real statistics out there that t back up what you're saying. One that I have here talks about how only 2.7% of VC investment goes to women-led startups, at least in the U.S. And that over the last, the funding over the past decade, Latinx women-led startups have raised only 0.32%, while black women have raised only 0.0006%. Yep. And, and this is despite the fact that women drive 60 to 70% of consumer behavior in yep. the U.S. And the data also shows that startups led by women, achieve a 35% higher return on investment, and when venture-backed, generate 12% higher revenue, according to the Kauffman Foundation. And lastly, according to first-round capital portfolio, companies founded by women outperform companies founded by men by 63%. Yeah. Yeah. So this is what my question, which I don't know how to answer this at all, but that's why I'm asking mm -hmm. it, is usually VCs are going to be metrics-driven and data-driven and they're gonna to wanna to return on their investment. So how do, how do we uncross these wires here where it's pretty clear that the metrics show um, you know, your guarantee on revenue, much more so, and yet that's not what's actually being funded. Can, can, I, can I just interject? Someone asked a question. They wanted to know what a VC was. A VC is a venture capital. Um, it's an institution that invests early stage money into fast growing startups. Back to you. Thank you. I would say one thing I would say is when you look at the makeup of venture capitalists uh, and venture capital firms, own, for example, I can only talk really for the UK, only 13% of senior women, uh, senior people, sorry, in the UK investment teams are women. And, and more than 48% of uh, investors and uh, uh, VCs have no women uh, and no people of colour. Uh, in in their in their uh, board, so you know my whole idea here is, if you want to change things, you have to have more women in those very senior positions that are going to be able to say, hold on a minute, this is where we need to put our money. You know we need more female role models at the top in VCs, so that other people can look up and say, actually, you know I can be a female VC too. 
um, the, the whole VC world is <clears throat> so male. And not only male, it's very male and it's very white. Hmm. Hmm. So, you know, so, there's a lack of role models there. So, if I'm going to ask, I'm actually, funnily enough, in that conversation with VCs at the moment uh, from my own company. So, it's an interesting conversation, but I'm going to give you another couple of other uh, numbers. In 2018, only 11 African American women raised 1 million in funding. Hmm. That's it, 11. And then if you look at the number, the amount of money, uh, the average money raised by African Americans or black women is $36,000. Hmm. And we know how much those guys invest in tech companies, right? Mm -hmm. So, so I think it's like science, you know, it's like I was listening to a podcast from Neil deGrasse uh, a couple of days ago. And one of the things he was talking about is critical thinking and then decision making. And what it came down to was as much data as you want, as you, you know, you can throw data at people, you can give them evidence, but if they don't want to believe it, Mm-hmm. Or if the authority is not that somebody they think as an authority is not telling them that this is what they should be doing it, mm-hmm. then they're not going to do it, even if it's in their best interest. So I think this whole conversation to me brings me to think that it comes from the top, the top of the top of the top of the top. And why do we see a lot of bad behaviors at the moment is because the top isn't really good, mm-hmm. you know, even in government uh, positions so that's probably where we need, we need to start there is i want to bring in a couple of interesting angles here the chat's pretty lively both on social media and on on the zoom as well so one of our i think it's darcy winslow uh one of our past guests correct me if i'm wrong there is a darcy there so um whoever whichever darcy that is i think it sounds like darcy winslow she's one of our past guests she's fantastic um, a speaker and and change maker so she's made an interesting point i want to throw it out there and table it what she's basically saying is um she's saying we should be interested in redesigning the system such that women aren't striving to lead companies structures and, and institutions designed Um, by mostly white men and she's saying why are we striving and aspiring to be in the positions where men have been trapped by the wrong set of incentives Mm -hmm. into a market system that hasn't been serving any of us well and Um, that's a i think that's carrie norton uh not darcy even though it says darcy it's carrie norton so thank you carrie for the great question and just to supplement that, the same sort of thought process talks to what Carrie has basically um, shared here, which is about regenerative economies. And every, you know, the point I think she's making is, let's not strive for yesterday's metrics of success. Mm-hmm. Someone said it's cool to be a CEO in this broken model. It's like when people say, oh, we're in this new normal, new reality. Um, you know the question is oh and and they talk about the the past normal or whatever it was defined as who said yesterday was fixed anyway who said yesterday worked mm-hmm. it didn't where we're having this conversation in a frank way because it doesn't work 
The system is broken. And but I'm going to challenge uh, the fact that we're going to, again, to me, when we talk about women, what we've done very successfully is bring more women at the table. But what we've done is bring white women at the table. And yeah. the reality, so if you take it to a lower level, to one level down in subgroups, like the ones I'm part of, which is um, ethnic, you know, or intersectional, intersectional groups, yeah. um, they will tell you that we actually even failed more because now more white women are at the top, but they're not letting those ethnic women come up. So, you know, what we're showing here is a bigger failure where people are, it's, it's human nature. If you take it down to anthropology, it's really human nature is you're going to continue to want to, um, uh, hire people who look like you, who you feel are similar to you. But there's a term that you often I we use a lot in our industries is Darwinism. You know, in my in my industry, I, I use the term that digital Darwinism a lot. And at some point, you have to look at that with diversity conversations as well. Is can the world, can the corporate business world survive the way it is survive? It is being, you know, working as it is, um, it, I don't think so. I mean, you know, if I, if I wanted just to say before I forget, because yeah. I, I just forget things, um, you know, with the whole conversation of, that Katie's just mentioned, and also, you know, the best person for the job, mm. okay. So what does that, you know, when you break that down, what does best person for the job mean? Okay, does it mean that all you're looking for is someone with some requisite technical skills only? Or does it mean you're looking for a leader who can, you know, has chemistry with the team, the organization, it, it matches the values? Best person for the job is a very difficult description. And actually, many people might be the best person for the job. And so if in an organization you know that you're not diverse and you have all these candidates, many of which could be the best person for the job, then actually, to be quite honest, why do you then not hire a woman or a woman of color instead of the usual white man? Because actually, they can all do the job no one applies for a job on the whole. I know, I know all the research shows that men will apply for jobs much more than women, even when they don't have all the, the skills. Women mm. will count themselves out. But, you know, they've got to that stage, that final stage, because they're all able to do the job. It's just then it comes to leadership skills, uh, it comes to best fit, all mm. those sorts of things, you know, and those sorts of things are very difficult to quantify. Mm. And that is where companies can then take a chance where and do something a bit different from what they've always done. Mm. Mm. Agreed. I, I do think I, I want to share a little anecdote, an example that is a little gentler, but uh, maybe is a positive route towards a segue into a solution, right? Because what's next? And I remember in my early stages of my career, after I did a corporate job, I, for a year I worked for a marketing agency. And um, I saw an advert somewhere and, and the, the salary looked higher than the, the, the salary I was getting in the other company. So I was all hungry and ambitious. So I applied for this job 
and it was a tiny little company somewhere close to my house. And I went in and I met the CEO directly. And I, I didn't really notice anything. I was just an ambitious guy. I didn't even think about ethnic or d differences. I was just like, I've got to make it. I walked in and had an interview with this guy, asked me loads of great questions who remain nameless and asked me loads of great questions. And we were chatting and chatting and he saw a lot of hunger in me, right? And I got the job and I was there for a good year and I, I was very successful. But let me tell you, that company was, um, was white, basically. And actually, it was run by a, um, a guy, a Jewish guy, and, and it's quite a close community. And everyone else was also Jewish then, and, and they hired me. And uh, they weren't being racist or anything, but they hired me. They're like, oh, all right, I didn't have any exposure. Wow, okay, I'll give you the job. A year later, there were many, many other salespeople, accountants, who were Indian, brown. And I think sometimes it's about having the courage to stand up and say, hey, I, I want to go. And, and I, I'm, not, this is not, I'm not sort of saying people don't do that, but a lot of people who are sometimes on the back foot, and look, it's the reality. This is the reality of life. There's some, there, there haves and have nots. It's just the way it is. Whether you take Maslow's hierarchy or you follow George Orwell's animal, um, animal farm, right? Some, everyone's equal, some people are more equal uh, sort of concept. The reality is if you want to create change, you have to step up. You know, anyone who's fought for diversity, freedom, independence in the world will know that you've got to fight hard for it. And then, then it becomes default. And I, I just want to say one thing to people out there. And this is no, this is not a victim game. This is not, oh, let's have a really, you know, let's complain. It's not about that. We do want to find a solution. I think one of the things I love about what, what Karima is doing or Casey is doing, should I say, I think I've seen you, you always put your hand up to do things, right? And surprise, surprise, you get opportunities. Now, there's no doubt that you could, you, you're probably marginalized or you probably don't get all of the opportunities you've choose to go for. And yes, you know, your, your face may not fit because of all of the reasons we've talked about and we've got to change that system. But at least you put up your hand. And I think a lot of people, I want to say this to people who come from challenged backgrounds. It's not just about women, um, black, white, brown, also people who have um, LGBTQ, people who come from different sexual orientation, people who have disabilities. People might feel it's a confidence issue as well. They're like, oh, no point me applying for the job. I'll never get it in the first place. That victim mentality doesn't do anyone any favors. So what I do want to call out here so it doesn't feel like, oh my God, you know, it's all doom and gloom is that there is a way forward. You have to decide if you're a change agent and you're an influencer, or are you going to be the victim and you're going to say, well, the world's just going to happen to me. And is it fair? It ain't fair. No, it's not. But are you going to work hard to change the system? Are you going to be on a straight talk live and have the balls or the courage to speak up and say what you really need to say? Or be really politically correct and say, ooh, better not go there. Might get fired or something. Uh, or be British about it, as we're taught, Seema, to not really say what we really think. Um, and I'm learning that from the Americans. You know, hats off to the Americans because you have to be direct. You have to move away from the gray and speak in binary language and say, no, don't want it. It's not happening. And until we have the courage to do that, even if you get your P45, you get fired, um, fine. You're good enough to find the next role. Uh, so I, I want to call that point out for people listening here today because you have to have the courage. I've got the courage. That's why I'm speaking up. If I was in a corporate, God damn it, I wouldn't be saying anything. Uh, or if I did, I'd be fired the next morning. And that is why I run my own businesses. So I can speak to the points that really matter. 
Um, so I'll, I'll pause there, but I want to talk about that story with a small company because I created change there. It was just one me uh, and I changed people's perceptions and each one of us can. It's important to believe in that. Yes, definitely. Um, I think Carrie had a question and I don't remember having heard it. So I, I want to make sure <clears throat> I hear it. So. Well, here's what Carrie said also, which I think is a great point. And to your point F as well, I'm going to tie these two together that there is personal responsibility for each of us to step up and, and speak truth to power. There's also an organizational responsibility, a board level responsibility, a VC led responsibility. All of that's true. Right. And, and so with that, you know, Carrie has an interesting point here that um, for with the white male privilege and being in positions of power in a predominant way, what would it be like for at least 15% of white male CEOs of Fortune 100 companies <laughs> to replace themselves with a woman or person of color and yet stay in the role to, to mentor and support them to be successful and um, give them that, uh, a fraction of their salary and equity and really standing for allyship? Um, do you think that's actually practical in today's world? Do you see that happening? That that's amazing. That's what um, Alexis Onahan started to do. So the, the co-founder of Reddit, that's what he did a couple of uh, months ago. Mm -hmm. He stepped down. And one of the things a lot of black people, because that's what I was hearing and you know, was saying is, well, you shouldn't have, and that was my opinion as well, is he who shouldn't have stepped down. He should have created another seat for someone else. Mm -hmm. And actually, because his voice was so important, is so important because he thinks that way, right? So he could have not only mentored that new person, but also mentored the whole board to see that. So uh, definitely, I agree. That's a great idea. What are some organizations that are getting this right? Um, yeah. When you look at different companies, organizations that are bringing inclusion to the table and they're, and they're actually models that are inspiring. Seema, have you seen any of those uh, or, or worked with any of those? Yeah, we, we, we partner with a lot of organizations that are getting it right. I can't name them all, but... You know, people like Accenture worldwide are really changing the way they balance their teams, uh, bring in inclusion. I mean, I think, you know, organizations that get it right, they are looking at every level uh, that there is from the board level right down to entry level. So, it, it, you know, it starts with how do you recruit? Where do you recruit from? Who do you recruit? Do you have blind CVs? You know, all those adages of when women uh, and uh, people of color have applied for jobs and their, their name gives away their gender or their race, they're not uh, asked for interview. They send the same CV in and they change their name, they whiten it. You know, suddenly they get an interview. And so- well, you know, I've done that. I actually have done that and I have numbers, but it's my own numbers. I've sent 350 resumes. Um, I got two positive responses for an interview. One of them, they thought that they read wrong my name. They thought that I was Armenian. Um, the, the other one had gone on vacation in, my, in the place I was born. So we kept, he kept talking about it. And then when I changed my name to a more uh, neutral name, I got a lot more responses, maybe 20% more responses, but it still ended up being the same outcome because they had to see me, right? So, can, can I just add to that as well? Again, I'm not complaining, but in my own company, um, 
we as an entrepreneur you've got to do everything right you've got to sell you've got to market you've got to do a whole lot right as you know so in my, in my company i hired a guy in the business he's no longer he's no longer in, in the company but a great friend of mine and, and a mentee and um i was doing some prospecting now remember i've spent 20 years of my career doing all sorts of stuff reinvented myself got the accolades got all the checklists done right went to the right universities and so on so i had to graft that five seven ten times harder but that aside I'd sent emails out on LinkedIn, messages out on LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn is effective because they can see your profile. So you social proof bang instantly. But if you didn't, I noticed I sent the same email with my name, Af, Af, whatever you want to call it, not Jim or Bob or Peter, same message. Uh, and, and I got, I deliberately got this other guy who had a Western name to send a message. And you, you can guess what his response rate was. It was, it was way higher than mine. Seven out of 10 responses. I was getting one out of 10, two out of 10. Bear in mind, I was the, I'm the co-founder of the business, right? Yeah. So my job title at the bottom made no difference. Yeah. His was business development lead, yeah. for example. Yeah. That, and so I've, I have real evidence as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Yes, it's a niche story, but this is hardcore prospecting. Yeah. So unconscious, conscious bias, don't like the name. I don't want an AF, don't want an Imran, don't want a whatever. Um, I, I wouldn't mind, I feel comfortable with Peter, you know, which is why sometimes you find people, even in the States and the UK, you know, a, um, an ethnic name would be Richard, but the surname would be something else. Yeah. And so we still have to do this shit. You know, we still have to do it. But don't you think, don't you both think, don't you all think, Rick included, do you not think it's best to call it out? I oh, mean, I've been... I wasn't calling it out for so many years. I don't know why I wasn't calling it out. Maybe I was too busy trying to be successful in my job. That's confidence though as well. I find as I'm getting older, I really don't give a damn anymore. Yeah. And I will call it out. I, I might do it diplomatically because that is the sort of person I am, but I will call it out. And you know, and you know, I've got three kids and I, and they're mixed race. My husband is white Caucasian. And so we have these lovely mixed race kids and they don't often tell me that they are coming across racism. But when they do, I tell them to call it out. I tell them to call it out amongst their friends who say, oh, well, I don't mean it about you because you're my friend. Mm -hmm. And they'll just say it. You know, I remember when I, I got into, um, you know, when I was uh, 11, I, I did my um, 11 plus and I managed to pass it. And I got into a fantastic school in, in my area, Tiffin Girls, still one of the, the best schools in the UK. And it had never occurred to me before about my colour. But I went into Tiffin's and there were three classes there, three classes of 28, 30 kids. I was the only woman, a girl there mm. of colour. And that was the first time I think it really hit me that you know there weren't anyone else no teachers the head was not no one looked like me mm. and and so because i was one of the girls one of you know, it was a girl's school you know everyone just thought of me as seema and you know very fast friends my closest friends are still from school now but i remember hearing some of them being really racist using really racist language you know um and and I think I did call it out and I said to them, how can you use that sort of language? I'm stood right next to you. And they would say exactly the same to me then. So nothing has changed in 40 years that my, my children's friends are saying to them, oh, but you're one of us. 
Yeah. Let me let me ask you this really quick about how to call it out because we have a great question from Amy Chelf Chelfin, and she asks that she's in general agreement to diversity mattering in all senses and, and very strongly, uh, but the willingness to address it openly faces resistance, fear, and misunderstanding. And so her preference is to go ahead and just have those conversations no matter what, and reactions will normalize over time. Do you both agree with that? Or how do, would you I agree. proceed? I agree. And I love Amy, by the way. She's a friend of, a great friend of mine. So hi, Amy. Um, I agree. I'm with, I'm like off, right? It's, if there's a problem, let's talk it out. Yes, people will be very uncomfortable. That in mind, I have to just also take the time to salute and thank all the allies mm -hmm. that have been there for me and for us. We, I, don't, I think with this conversation, we tend to lump everyone together because you know, time is of essence. But it's important to pause and say thank you to people like Tara, Pat, and all the people who have reached out to me and who over the years have shown true allyship. Mm -hmm. And allyship, you know, you don't wake up an ally. You're trained and sometimes you're coached to be an ally because you don't know what it is to walk in somebody's shoes until you have. But those people have opened their heart, mind, and also they have decided to take an action. So this is the kind of people when they see something that they feel, and Amy is one of them, when they see something that they feel isn't right, they will walk into a room and it's too wide or they will, um, they will actually stop and raise their hand and say, is, you know, why isn't those people included? So we have to thank this kind of people. And I think only then will we actually achieve um, true inclusion. And if we take activism, I'm a huge activist. I don't protest in the street. I don't do that, but I'm a huge business activist. And as a business activist, you have to talk, you, you have to call it out. You have to, it's a matter of survival. It's a matter of the pipeline. It's a matter of the next generation. So, um, we, we have to have those conversations. Yes, you have to be, you can be polite. You can smile about it. You can, you know, be very pleasant. But it's still conversation I'm willing to have, and I'm willing to actually even lose some time contract over, because, um, for example, I've had clients that were racist, you know, and they would be willing to give me a contract, but they would be extremely demeaning about it. Um, so I'm willing to fire those clients and to, you know, you, you have to stand up for something. I think you, you don't have a choice. But you have to, you know, at the end of the day, I completely agree with you, Casey. It's, it's about authenticity, you know. Yeah. Who are you and, and what, how do you want to be perceived in the world and what do you want to do to make the world a better place, you know. So, you know, in organisations, that's why I say, yes, of course, it's really important to have diverse and inclusive people all the way up the organization. But at the end of the day, the buck stops at the CEO, the culture of that organization comes top down. Yes, it, it does come bottom up as well, but if you get that right vibe right from the top, you know that things are gonna make a, uh, you know, start changing. It, it, I love what you said. I love what you said, Sima. And what I hear, and Af, you might hear is as well in the um, in more of this SME world where people say, well, we're a small company. We don't have the time mm -hmm. for those diversity program. I'm a small company and my team is more diverse than anything. I think we have 12 countries. We have, a, we have 
I think at this point, more women than men. We have some people on the um, spectrum. We have LGBT, we have disabled, we have, we have everyone in there. And, it's not, and, I, and I was thinking about it because we're actually writing an article. And I said, I'm not choosing those people. I'm not going out and say, well, I need an Asian person today and I need somebody who is uh, LGBT. I think it's a culture, as you said, Sima, is something that also I stand for. And people actually are drawn to us because of that, because they know that when they work with us, they will be included mm -hmm. and they will yeah. be accepted, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. Isn't, isn't that an interesting example, last few minutes? Regardless of the fact that you're a small company, imagine you were the CEO of Nike, the CEO of Pepsi, the CEO of JP Morgan. It's about ethos. It's about your mm -hmm. thesis. It's about your value system. It's about your traits. Not about your skills that you can acquire overnight. It's all of those other things. It's down to your family background. It's down to what you heard in the living room when mummy and daddy were talking, you know, and all of those things. And, and those could be awful things. Doesn't mean you're a racist. It means that you actually woke up one day and said, crikey, that's an awful thing to say about people. How would it feel if someone said that about me? And that's where there's a, there you, we need a level playing field. And I think this battle that we are fighting or this war that we're engaged in is just about level playing field. Yes. From yes. there on, it, it's just, you know, it's, it's a meritocracy. One of my final point to, to you in Canada, you in the UK and, and Rick's in the States. I just want to call out a few things. I think the United States, um, for me as a British uh, entrepreneur and of Indian heritage, I've found the United States to be way more accepting of people from ethnic backgrounds. Maybe it's just me and I got lucky, but I don't think so. And I do want to recognize that. And, and people might say, oh, it's a land of opportunity. Uh, it's all made up of immigrants. You come from a monolithic culture. Yes, but these things matter today. And all you need is for your children, we all, we're all parents or have nieces and nephews. We want to create a world where you're not having your child step on minefields of hatred, mm -hmm. minefields of uh, distrust or mistrust, minefields of a playground you know, uh, conversations that are offensive, whatever it may be, we need to cre create a pathway that is fair for all, white, black, brown. And you can only start doing that when you two come in and share your experiences like this. So hopefully it's inspired a bunch of people. Rick, over to you, mate, because we could talk for hours. Yeah, we need to, unfortunately, need to wrap up. Um, this is such a lively conversation. And I just want to make that final point also um, in alignment with what you just said. And it comes back to a lot of what Sima, you've been, you know, keep picking throughout this conversation. It really comes back to the culture. It comes back to the leadership of the culture. I'm working with one major, you know, Fortune 500 organization and the CEO is of this kind of mindset of really having a level playing field and, and, and raising the ground from, and it's inspiring. And I think why it's so inspiring is because unfortunately it's so rare. It's so yeah. rare. So when you see a leader who can really lead with inclusion and with diversity in, in these different ways, it really catches your attention like, wow. And, and, and holy shit, why isn't that happening everywhere? It's right. amazing how loud that is when you do see it. Um, so I, I just see that that really is the point. Who has the power? Who has the money? Who makes the decisions? It has to be influenced on that level. It has to be impacted on that level. And so, and, I, and the last piece I'll say is when we each keep sharing our personal stories um, and, and me as an ally, I can hear those stories and be moved and, 
take someone else's world in a whole different way. That's where I want to, you know, activate to change and activate to help um, on a whole nother level um, because of my own blind spots that I have. Uh, and so it's so helpful to keep sharing your stories, keep calling out people who are listening on the, on the show, keep calling it out, mm. keep naming the elephant in the room. That's what has to happen or we're never going to have real dialogue or conversation or relationship. We have to keep calling it out. So those are my final words. I'm totally inspired by this conversation. Uh, Seema, Casey, I'd love to hear your final words. And also, how can people find out about you and where, where should they go? Seema, let's start with you. Well, thank, I just want to thank you so much for having me. Um, and my final words are, we still have a long way to go, uh, but there is so much we can all do. And I think calling it out, having the right practices, talking about it, being transparent, honest, authentic, will get us there. Uh, it's slow, but we will get there. Um, and if anyone wants to contact me, um, please email me. I'm Seema at everyone.com. Excellent. Casey. I love what Seema just said. So I'm going to say everything that Seema said, plus, uh, I think for me, the difference, and I'm going to quote a friend of mine, uh, Joseph, who, who I had a conversation with, he's like, there's a difference between courage and confidence. And I think people have to stop relying on confidence and have a need to have more courage, um, you know, to face those issues and mm -hmm. to tackle them. Uh, where do people uh, find me? I'm on Twitter, Karima Catherine, or email karima at red.digital.net. Love it. Thank you both so much for bringing thank your... Thank you so much for having me. By the way, on my birthday, you guys are amazing, by the way. I just have to say that. Love yeah. you, love you, love you. <laughs> Uh, I don't know what you. <laughs> happy birthday, Karima. Thank you, Seema. And I'm I so happy. <laughs> so wonderful. And I just want to do a quick little blurb for next week. We're going to have one of our friends that Casey knows as well. Uh, Mateo is going to be on our show for Dark Side of the Tech Titans. We're going to look at the underbelly in a way that only Mateo knows how to do. Uh, it's going to be a fantastic show. So please join us next week for what's going to be an incredible exploration into the good and the bad, looking at the whole picture of the tech titans and what do we need to do to shift that conversation also. Thank you all again for tuning in to Straight Talk Live. If you didn't catch us live, we're going to be on your iTunes and your Spotify very shortly. So hear us out there on the streets or in your earbuds uh, when you're at the gym or if you can go to the gym or if you're on a run outside, whatever you can do, check it out. And <laughs> Please share the replay everywhere. Af, any final words? No, you've summed it up beautifully. What, what an honor. Great, great session. Really inspired and ready for the, uh, the weekend, actually. Uh, is it th it's Thursday today? It's I think still I'm Thursday. Gonna I'm going to take a day off tomorrow. What the hell? I'll like I'm done. <laughs> I'm done with the week. Right. <laughs> it doesn't feel like a Friday. You're right. <laughs> so we're all signing off. Thank you, everyone, for listening and sharing this important message. Get this out there. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye, everyone.